chapter 4. In a minute we will get into the first half of that chapter. So some churches, and again, when I, when I say stuff like this, please do not take what I'm saying as any condemnation on how another church practices, church practices or not, but more of, a, more of a, a reflection on where we're at, where we're at personally, where we're at corporately, and how that aligns with what God calls us to. So some churches say, we worship in the truth of God's Word. We worship in the truth of God's Word. It's our primary objective. Um, and their orthopraxy, not orthodoxy, but their orthopraxy, kind of how they function as a church, reflects that. Uh, even on a Sunday, everything seems a, a precursor for what they're really there for, the sermon. And the emphasis is on, is on sound teaching and the character transformation that, Lord willing, would come through that. Other churches say, we worship according to the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our emphasis. That's our goal. And their orthopraxy, the way they practice faith in church, reflects that. It's often more spontaneous in nature. It, it embraces uh, the free of freedom over some maybe tight structures and the mysterious and supernatural outworkings of the Holy Spirit of God. The emphasis is on experiencing the powerful and intimate presence of God, God among us, and seeing Him move. One camp says to the other, uh, there isn't a strong enough emphasis on good doctrine over there. Can't know God apart from good theology. And another responds, well, what is life with God <laughs> apart from experiencing the freedom and the power and the intimacy of God through the experiential expressions of the Holy Spirit of God? And my question to all that is always, why is it either or? <laughs> and why does it so often seem either or? Doesn't true worship involve spirit and truth? We're working on our series concerning our church values here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel because we talked about in the very beginning that values ultimately drive action. And so far we've considered our values of being Christ-centered, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Savior, being scripturally based, and functioning in the context of koinonia, that Greek word that, that refers to the fellowship, the, the, a community that shares life deeply together in Christ. Last week we looked at the significance of being a church that honors the priesthood of all believers. That we're not an audience, but rather we're all meaningful participants if you are in Christ Jesus, if you proclaim Him to be your Lord and your Savior, an equal participant, uniquely gifted to engage God's community and the world, to worship God, to help build up the body of Christ, and to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation as Christ's ambassadors to those who not, do not yet know God. 
through Jesus. This week we'll focus on being a church community that worships in spirit and truth. I told this story, a real brief quote last year, but it's worth repeating that I... I um, had an African-American pastor friend in New Jersey, and I just always remember when we were talking about uh, worship, and we were talking specifically about, I, I, we had shared some worship times of music together, and you know, in his church, they would, they would spend 10 minutes on a song with eight words. It's no exaggeration. I mean, they would just sing those eight words and in different ways, and you were like, you're moving, man, you know? And in our church, we'd sing like a song with 80 words in three minutes. I say, wow, what, what's going on there? What's the difference? And, and I just loved as we were longing to learn from one another. He said, you know, we often worship in spirit. And you often worship in truth. All these words and all, you know, all this doctrine. He says, but, but God is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. I always love that. Carl Barth wrote, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. Now, that's a large statement. The most momentous, urgent, glorious action that can take place in human life. What do we, what do we mean by worship? If you look up a, de uh, a dictionary's definition, you usually come up with something like this. Intense love, admiration, reverence, and devotion, especially toward a deity. Right? You, think, you, think of, you think of a love story, or you think of someone who is head over heels, a, a young guy or young gal, they're just head over heels for someone. And, and you know, you, the, the, the classic cheesy guy serenading the, the girl at the window, whatever, and you just say, oh, it's like he worships her. Because there's this, there's this intense love that overflows to devotion. Biblically, when, when the Bible uses the word worship, or it's translated worship in the English, they're usually words that denote a celebratory praise, an activity, or a humble submission, a, a kind of a kissing the hand of an authority or a bowing down to an authority. So it's an interesting dynamic going there. Celebratory praise, adoration, and a humble submission. So do we mean religious devotion and activity? Service? Do we, do we mean when we get together and together on a Sunday morning and praise God through song, through, through edification, through people using their gifts... The outworking of the Holy Spirit, the various spiritual gifts among us? Are we referring to a heart that responds to God in humility and repentance? Are we talking about a willingness to surrender our resources to God? Are we referring to sacraments such as baptism and communion? Is it referring to my life Submitting to the truth of God's word. Are we speaking of an entire life attitude in which each facet of my life is sacrificed to God? And to each of those things I could say, well, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That is what we're speaking about. 
whether it's our corporate expressions of worship together, whether it's a formal expression of worship through the sacraments of baptism or communion, whether it's my private worship with God, or whether it's my lifestyle of worship with the Bible calls me to, to sacrifice everything to the Lord. They all should have the same attitude and the same goal. Worship orients my heart toward God. It orients my heart toward God in reverence, in that radical love that I just spoke of, and in sacrifice and devotion and honor and adoration and adulation and praise and all those things, in thanksgiving, glorifying, praising, obeying the one and only who deserves it. In the Old English, the expression wouldn't have been worship. Does anyone know what it would have been in, the old, in old English? It would have been worthship. Worthship. Denoting and attributing to God the praise of our lives and all that He is worth. Now, the truth is that we're all created to worship. You are created to worship. You are wired to worship. Some of you are like, I'm not such a worshiper. I see some people worship, and, and I'm like, I'm not really like that. You're wired to worship. You just are. Now, that might, that might express itself in different ways. That might, you might stuff some of that. You might, you, know, you, you might be flamboyant about some of that. You're, everybody's wired to worship. And all you need to do is to look at people's lives to see that. Everyone worships something or someone or a multitude of somethings and someones. Go to a rock concert. I'm always like, you go to a concert, you want to see people worshiping. It doesn't matter, Christian or secular. Go to a secular rock concert. You want to see people worshiping? I mean, they're worshiping. I mean, they, they're, they're, whether it be the music, whether it be the musician, they, they're in this place of worship. People do things at football games, you know, as fans. And what does fan mean? A fanatic that, that they would, you know, never do at like, at like a restaurant, you know. <laughs> woo Like, I'm not going to raise my hands to God, but woo Go team, go! Paint myself all these colors and look like a, you know, but, but it's like at church, I'm like. <laughs> We're designed to worship. It's just that our worship is often misguided and misdirected. People worship sex. People worship pornography. You're like, that's worship pornography. Sure. Are you driven by it? Is it all you think about? Are you, is it your go-to? You know, is it your idol? People worship pleasure and comfort in their careers. Their work is so important. They're so important to their work. They'll neglect everything else. Money, possessions, technology, power, status, popularity, leisure, all kinds of stuff. Hobbies, relationships, sometimes our own families. Sometimes people worship their own children. You're like, that's weird. Hey, so tied in. Everything revolves around that thing. It's what Romans 1.25 says when it says that we worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. That's the heart of idolatry, right? 
We worship created things rather than the creator. One of the best known stories of the gospels is found here in John 4. And, and there's a lot of different approaches here. And I've, you know, we went through the Gospel of John a couple of years ago. So I'm going to accentuate kind of the latter part of this, this exchange, which often gets a little overlooked. But let's read John 4, verses 1 through 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who would baptize, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Galilee and went back once more, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town. Now it's interesting that he had to go through. That's had to is not like you had to, like you might think of it, like that's the only way to go. It, most Jews avoided it. But it, Jesus, for Jesus, it says he had to. Okay, so he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. How can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So that I won't have to, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, "Go call your husband and come back." Uh, I have no husband," she replied. Jesus said to her, "You're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you know, the man you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is quite true." Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ in the Greek, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Or literally, I am, I am he who speaks with you. So Jesus enters into several apparent social faux pas here. We have our own collections of those in our culture. We have our own collection of those in rural USA. And they may differ from urban USA. Um, Samaria, like I said, was a region and Samaritans were a people that most Jews avoided. The Jews considered them half-breeds, so there was kind of a social prejudice. Many centuries before, there were Jews that had intermarried with some foreigners, so they were, they were, they were considered not pure-bloods, if you will, not pure-blooded Jews, so there was social prejudice. That was also somewhat reflected in their, in their religious practice. They didn't recognize all of the scriptures as they had them at the time, the whole of the Old Testament. They just recognized the first five books of the Bible. So on top of this... Um, a Jew not associating with a Samaritan, as you get in the text, a, a, a pious Jew would never engage a conversation with a woman, never mind the fact that she was a Samaritan. A pious male Jew, I should say, would never engage a conversation in public with a woman. That was a no-no. Um, never mind the fact that we find out, and Jesus knew full well, that she was a woman of ill repute, as we might say. Maybe you don't say that. I don't say that, actually. And a devout Jew would never, ever think about drinking from a Samaritan's cup. They would consider that something that would make them unclean. But those were all man-made barriers. So Jesus was like, I'm not confined by man-made barriers. Nor should we. For Jesus, she was a human being created in the image of God, dying of thirst without God, whether she realized it or not. She had been with many lovers, but clearly her cup was not full. How many lovers have you had? And I don't mean just people. (laughs) Maybe people, but things that capture your heart things that you're prone to worship. Has your cup stayed full? Or is it more like this? Oh man, give me some more of that. Give give me some more of that porn, man. Give me some, what the, felt good for a second. Give me some more of that social media. I need some more likes. Give me some, give me some more of that, that popularity. I can never get enough, it just... Give me some more of that praise of men. (laughs) Whatever it is, give me some more of that booze. Give me some more of that power. It just keeps draining out of the bottom of your cup. And you just get that little sip, just enough to drive you the next time, but your cup is never full. 
And Jesus is like, you want water? Come to me. I'll give you water. And guess what? It's going to overflow and overflow and overflow and overflow. Is this freaking you out? It's okay. And overflow. It's just water. Look at the carpet guy. It's just water. It's okay. Jesus says, you want to be filled, I'll fill you. And it'll keep flowing and flowing and flowing. And all that other stuff that you're trying to fill yourself with, it's empty, there's a hole in your cup, and there'll always be a hole in your cup. Many believe at this point that that this woman tries to shift the attention from herself to religion. Because, you know, the, the, the idea is that, you know, maybe she's just freaked out by the fact that he knows so much about her. So let me, let me divert attention. I'm not, that may be true, that may be partially true. I'm not sure that's wholly true. I mean, for one, later on, and just think about this, that later on, even though God, in, Jesus, in a sense, in an in, in a, in emotional sense or spiritual sense, kind of stripped her bare, right? She was laid naked before him in that sense, like, this is my life, this is the mess of me. But yet she goes with that, not, not you know, sleeking away in shame, but she goes with that to her town, and she's like, you got to meet this guy who just told me everything about my life. I'm like, is that, is that the impact that we have on people? <laughs> so I'm not sure, you know, she may at this point be directing, redirecting the conversation, but I, I think that there's this aspect where she, she thought Jesus was talking about real water for a few minutes, just like Nicodemus thought he, Jesus was talking about real birth, a real rebirth, getting back in my mom's womb. No, and then I, it's like she gets this sense like, oh, there's something deeper going on here. This guy's a prophet. The, the Samaritans were waiting for the prophet. This guy's a prophet. They had known, certainly, uh, through the Jews of Messiah. Like, who is this guy that can know all that stuff? So what she does is she enters into this question about proper worship. And in essence, she's saying, who's getting it right? Who's getting worship of God right? Are we getting it right, or are you guys getting it right? I think this was a sincere question. I mean, again, I'm just kind of inferring, entering into the text a little bit. I think there was something very sincere going on here. Who's getting it right? And Jesus isn't afraid to tell her that they're getting it wrong. (laughs) And he doesn't do this in a judgmental way. He's very winsome. He's very engaging. He's very respectful of a woman that almost no one would have been respectful of at the time. He's very caring of her. But he's not afraid to say, if I'm going to lead you to the truth, that means I've got to lead you away from the lie. What were they getting wrong? Jesus put it, puts it very simply. He puts it this way. That they were worshiping what they did not know. They were worshiping what they did not know. 
We could say they were worshiping in ignorance or, or in falsehood. Now this might sound like a strong statement to some of you, but I believe it's true, <laughs> biblically, that any worship, quote-unquote, Christian or otherwise, outside of the reality of what Jesus is speaking of here, worshiping in spirit and in truth, is, is false worship. It's based in the flesh, it's based in ignorance, and it's based in falsehood. Let me give you a, a couple of indicators of false worship. For one, its origins are of the flesh. So it's about places, it's about rituals, it's about practices, it's about traditions. And not that all of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when it's, that, but when it's about that, something is askew. If I can just do the right religious things in the right religious places at the right religious times, somehow I've worshipped. It doesn't matter if my mind is a million miles away. It doesn't matter if my heart is a million miles away. Right religious things, right religious times, right religious places, I've worshipped. And this leads to kind of a religious arrogance. It breeds a, a self-righteousness, partially because it's attainable. I can do that. And just, you know, you create a formula, and I'll follow the formula, and I'm doing it right, and most people, you know, people who don't worship the way I do or we do probably are getting it quite wrong. And I can be arrogant. I can kind of strut around. God must be pretty happy with me. I've got the formula down pat. Its origins are in the flesh. Uh, next, it doesn't have power to change what's true about me. And because of this, it breeds hypocrisy, play acting. It doesn't have the power to change what's true about me. It may have some outward effects, but it has no inward effect, so it doesn't change the most important things in life. It has no effect on my heart. And if my heart isn't changed, then my real life isn't changed. Jesus said, he's quoting Isaiah here in Matthew chapter 15. He says, these, he says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. This is why the scriptures like Isaiah 58, if you're jotting notes, Isaiah 58 and, and in Amos 5, you, you, you hear God saying things like, I'm tired of your worship. I'm tired of your religion. Cut it out. I'm tired of your sacrifices. And you're like, wait a minute, God. Didn't you tell us to do these things? The problem is, is that it was outward. Outward worship, worship of the flesh. But there was no rending of their hearts. There was no inner change. They, 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 there's a, there's a, it, it wasn't an inner, uh, an inner change that brings about a right life. There was still deception and there was still greed and there was still lust. 
and judgment and and gossip and the the wagging of the finger. (laughs) Prejudice and selfishness. And he talks a lot about in those chapters exploitation of the weak and the marginalized and neglect of the oppressed and the poor. Say, what kind of worship is that? And it's all this false worship because it's not based on what's true about God. And therefore, it's really not based on what's true about anything. God is spirit and this worship is of flesh. It's worship based on a lie that I can please him doing just the right religious things at just the right religious times, just the right religious places. If I just light that candle, if I just sing that song loud enough, if I just do my daily devotions, I've got the formula right. And somehow God will be pleased and I've attained it. But ultimately it doesn't change the deepest realities of my life. I'm just as corrupt and I'm just as empty and I'm just as thirsty and I'm just as hungry as I ever was before. Now Jesus enters the scene and he says he's the fulfillment of all that Judaism, all that the law and the prophets spoke of. In the end, he says that he is Messiah. Interesting that he revealed that to a Samaritan woman and wasn't even at that time revealing that openly to his own Jewish people. But he's inaugurating something completely new. That through him, and only through him, do we enter into the worship that Jesus is speaking of here. True worship begins and ends with Jesus. Amen? It's got to be that. It's got to be Christ-centered. It's not about a place anymore. Not about where the Samaritan said the right place was. It wasn't even about what, rightly for that time, the Jews said the right place was. That was all going to be done away with. And even the temple itself was going to be destroyed. It's about a person. It's about connecting through God, to God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. A man named Bruce Millen says, True and satisfactory worship is offered in and through Jesus Christ. Only through the truth He embodies and the Spirit He imparts can we know God and worship Him. How are we made alive in spirit? You were made body soul and spirit. But the scriptures say that because of sin, because of our rebellion against God, that spirit has been detached from the author of life. There's a chasm, there's a separation. And then your spirit is as good as dead apart from Him. So that's, when Jesus, that's why when Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, this really religious guy, this old religious man who knows God's word so well, and he's like, listen, old guy, you got to be born again. you got to become a baby again. How do I do that? I can't re-enter my mom's womb. No, listen, we're not talking about flesh. We're talking about spirit. Because flesh gives birth to flesh, and the spirit gives birth to spirit. And your spirit is as good as dead. You need to be born again. 
And that's what Jesus makes possible through his death and resurrection. The payment of our sins, new life forevermore, that forgiveness can be found in Christ, reconciliation can be found in Christ, and a literal spiritual rebirth can be found in Christ. It's the only way true worship happens. My spirit made alive by God's spirit and walking in harmony with God's spirit. His power, his enlightenment, his giftings, the many expressions of that spirit, I'm made alive and now I'm walking in harmony with him. That's, that's where I can truly worship. It involves my body, right? It involves my outward self. It involves praise and worship and adoration and, and even using my body and my voice in that. It involves my body and obedience and service. But my body just becomes a vessel of what's happened in my spirit. Get it? Not the other way around. It's not just the outward and doesn't affect the inward. It's the inward is so changed that my body can't help but move in it. And true worship is spirit and it's based squarely on what is true about God. And again, I've told you before, a lot of times when the Bible talks about what's true, it's talking about what's real. Because what is true corresponds with reality. And, God, and what God offers is real, so I have to worship in truth, in, in, in this place of genuineness and authenticity in God's reality. The world says certain things are true. My flesh wants to say certain things are true. Follow this. Do this. You'll be happy here. You'll be happy there. But God says, listen, you got to trust me that I say this is true and this is reality. This is what's real. It's what's best for you. I made you. Oh, that's the place that I have to worship. So rather than being removed from the rest of life, I go to church for a night, we sing songs for half an hour, and then I go and I do whatever I want to do, and I have all my lovers. And No, it's, it's, it's intertwined with the rest of life. It, it tells me what's real about God, and it tells me what's real about me, and it tells me what's real about the world that, that I'm swimming in, when a, whole lot, a lot of other things are lying to me. That's why we have God's word. Tell me what's real, God. Tell me what's real. Show me what's real about you. Show me what's real about myself. Show me what's real about this life and how I should navigate it. When we worship in truth, we put away self-righteousness and hypocrisy because I know what's real about God. God's a holy God. And I'm a bro- I know what's real about me. I'm a broken sinner. So I'm not like, well, I got the formula right. God must be pretty pleased with me. I hear God saying, you want to be holy? You're far from it. You're anything but holy. But I'll make you holy. I'll make you become Christ's righteousness when you just turn to him in faith. And in that place, I have nothing but gratitude, nothing but humbleness, nothing but adoration. Nothing but surrender. When I worship in spirit and truth, his reality becomes my reality. It affects everything. I can no longer compartmentalize my worship on Sunday mornings. Well, it's what what happens here, and I use my gifts here, and we sing here, and maybe I'll encourage someone, and then it's an all-of-life thing. Worship becomes how I parent. 
Worship becomes how I respond to my parents and I honor my parents. Worship becomes how I go about my work or my school day. Worship becomes how I treat people that disagree with me. Worship becomes, the, becomes how I treat with people who are marginalized and oppressed. That I don't walk on the other side of the street, but I engage it in the name of Christ. My whole life becomes an expression of worship. My spirit made alive with his Holy Spirit wherever I am. And living a life as I walk Sunday through Saturday, Sunday through Saturday in what he calls truth. What is real. And it's there that I'm satisfied. <laughs> it's there that I found life with the Spirit, harmony with the Spirit, and that spring of living water that keeps flowing and overflowing. So if your worship is all about truth, the truth of God, but somehow neglects the spirit of God, there's no life in that. There's no life in that worship. And, and if, if somehow you think you can worship in spirit, but that's somehow removed from the truth of God, what he calls real, what he says in his word, then there's no understanding in that. Of God, of yourself, of the world around you, and then there's no understanding in your worship. God is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. Is that what we're seeking here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel? Even when one might, or the other might be, bring you to some uncomfortable places, whether it be the truth of God, the spirit of God, Be honest with yourself. Are you attempting to worship in truth while neglecting the spirit? Are you attempting to worship in the spirit but not grounded in his truth? What example are we giving as a church, as individuals, to our children? If they just look at our lives... Sunday morning, yes, but beyond Sunday morning, what is worship? Is your corporate worship, your private worship, the worship of your daily life alive in the spirit, grounded in God's reality? Are you finding in that place, not a hole in your cup, but a spring of living water? Does it begin and end with Jesus? I'll close with this and then enter, uh, welcome up Daniel. Jesus said, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers will worship him in spirit and truth. Amen. Amen. Daniel.